Um, today we are kicking off uh, our series, A Year of Biblical Literacy. Um, and what I want us to do over the next year, a year-long series, kind of crazy. I think it's going to be a little more interesting than it sounds. Um, but we're going we're gonna to journey through Scripture together. Now, we're not going to necessarily like, start with Genesis 1-1 and end with Revelations 24, whatever the last chapter of Revelation is in the verse. Um, but we're going to look at some of the major themes and I hope discover more about the purpose and the role of Scripture and how it functions in our life. Now, um, a few of you may ask, you know, are you going to, uh, are you going to preach um, addressing the, the events of this week or what's going to happen over the next few years? I think the best way as a church um, to address uncertainty and unrest and anxiety is by, by returning to Scripture. Um, and so as a community, we're going to spend the next year um, in Scripture. And I actually think it has a powerful and prophetic word for us. Um, particularly at this time. Now, before we dive in, a couple of just uh, notes. Um, we have a webpage called thetablechurchdc.org um, forward slash uh, resources. Um, and on that page, you can see what I am reading as I prepare for my sermons. It's been up there for a little while, um, but we really weren't ready to un leash it, unveil it, unveil it, there's what I was looking for, we weren't ready to unveil it, um, but you can go on there, you can see the books I read um, as I was preparing for this sermon today, um, but you also, there is a link on there for both an, iP uh, for an iPhone and an Android app for what's essentially called Read Scripture is the name of the app. It's such a, it's a powerful app, and, and one of the things I want us to do as a community as we're doing this year of biblical literacy is I want us to read through the entire Bible together. Now, I know that's a, that's a really difficult um, ask, um, but I think it could be transformative. It takes you about, if you spend about 20 to 30 minutes a day, depending on your speed of reading, um, you can finish the entire Bible in a year. Now, the reason I want you to download this particular app is it has really unique uh, videos that introduces the different sections of Scripture. So as you're heading into the, the books of the law, they have a video that's about five minutes long that kind of explains and gives context to that particular section. Um, because as you'll notice, the problem with, with a year of reading through the Bible is you start in Genesis, and it's kind of cool, and you're like, I, know, I remember the story, and oh, wow, did that really happen in the Bible? And, and then Exodus, it, it, you know, you, you're like, oh, wow, I know about this, and the parting of the Red Sea, I've seen Charlton Heston play this role. And then... Um, and then you hit like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and you're like, what the crap is this? And that's when most of you stop reading. Um, and it turns out there's still a lot of the Bible is left after those pages. Um, and so these little videos help give a bit of context and hope to keep you going um, on the journey. Um, the other thing is, I just really, I think as a community, if we're reading through this together, we can wade through some of the more difficult passages together. So in community group, um, at dinner parties, um, in other spaces, you can say, did you read, did I really read what I thought I read this week? What did they say to do to that person? Um, and wrestle with what that means. So anyway, I really encourage you to do that, to download that app. Um, the other thing is, um, I just can't encourage you strongly enough. Um, after the service, we have a class called Discovery. Um, that really just, I think, does a phenomenal job of helping you discover your purpose and put it into practice in the world. Um, th there'll be a short personality uh, test and a short um, spiritual gifts assessment. Uh, someone who just, we, we just revamped it, did some um, work with it. Re uh, Rachel and Lisa have been working with that, and someone who just went to the new class told me last week just how phenomenal it was. So I really just encourage you to do that. Right after the service, there's pizza. Um, yeah, so do that. 
Anything else? I think that's it. Let's pray and dive in. God, I thank you for, um, I thank you for your word. Um, I thank you how um, thousands of years later it continues to speak fresh and anew into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So today what I want to do is I, I want to talk for a few minutes about problems with the Bible. The Bible is by and away the best-selling book in human history. There are about five billion copies of the Bible that exist today. Five billion Bibles. And most of us have some sort of access to a Bible. You either have a Bible at home, or you have flipped through a Bible um, in a hotel room that is beside the bed, or you've seen it on one of your friend's shelves. Most of us have had some interaction with the Bible. And while the Bible is the best-selling book of all time, it's actually read surprisingly little, even by Christians, and for good reason. The Bible is a complicated book compiled by many authors literally over a period of 1,500 years. And honestly, it's, it's, not, it's not even really accurate to speak of the Bible as a book. Instead, it's a library. It's a collection of books and writings. There are stories and law and history and poetry and personal letters. And, and then there's literature that's hard to classify and hard to understand, like the apocalyptic writings. And some of it's easy to read, and you, know, you read through the Psalms or through the Proverbs, and you're like, yeah, that's, that's applicable. I can put that on Instagram. But other things are really difficult to understand, whether it be Leviticus or the book of Revelation, which paints the coming Savior carrying a sword in his mouth, riding on a white horse. And the problems of the Bible go deeper than simply the complexity of its or composition. There's also an issue of hermeneutics, or as my wife would say, speak English, Kevin, which is how we read or understand the scriptures. What are the lens through which we read it? And in the hands of the powerful, in the hands of the powerful, the Bible has often been used and abused in order to protect the status quo. The Bible has been used to oppress women, it's been used to support slavery, and it's been used to keep people in their place. And for some of you, this is not an academic conversation. You felt the Bible like a weight on your chest. Maybe because of your sexual orientation or because your parents used it as a book to get you to conform. I remember my mom used to tell me when I would uh, complain, do you remember what happened, Kevin, to the children of Israel when they complained? <laughs> didn't work I still complain <laughs> it's been used as a book to get you to conform or it's been used as a uh, as a club by a pastor to to beat you into submission and yet and yet in spite of the ways the powerful have used the bible to maintain the status quo there is a power within its pages which topples and deconstructs the very forces which try to use it to their own advantage one of the most powerful examples of this is discovered, um, was discovered in early American history when the Bible was used to support the slave trade. 
They would, they would use verses like this. They would say, you know, the good book says Ephesians 6, 5, and Ephesians 6, 5, slaves, obey your, master, your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you should obey Christ. Or 1 Peter 2, 18, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. And then, and then we could even go deeper and we could look at Romans 13 about submitting yourself to the powers that be. But yet, yet, in spite of this, there, are subversive, there is a subversive power that has a way of breaking through. Because in spite of the best attempts of the powerful, within the pages of Scripture, there is a story, there is a story and a narrative of a God who is on the side of the powerless, and it goes as far as to, as to say that God will fight their battle for them. And God is a God of liberation. And the problem is, the problem with Scripture is, when you put it in people's hands, particularly the very people you are trying to oppress, they begin to read through and they discover the story of the Exodus. And they find out, in fact, God is not the God of the oppressor, but God is a God who liberates. The Exodus story dismantles the best arguments of the powerful. And what we discover is that the Bible serves as the foundation for what we now take for granted as human rights. Actually, Alan Dershowitz, who's a lawyer um, and a professor at Harvard, wrote a powerful book um, on Genesis and how the, on Genesis serves as the foundation for much of what we now take for granted as law. Max Stackhouse, a, a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, Seminary says, intellectual honesty demands recognition of the fact that what passes as secular Western principles of basic human rights develop nowhere else than out of the strands of the biblically rooted religions. It's the words of the Bible that served as the foundation for Dr. Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement, a movement that we are celebrating this week. Dr. King found the words in Scripture, especially in the prophetic tradition, to express both discontent with the present injustice and to hope for a better future. The central intellectual strain behind the civil rights movement focused on the issues of equality of all human. And what was the foundation? What was the intellectual foundation? It was this, that all people are created in the image of God. One of the most um, famous lines of Dr. King or one of the most famous speeches of Dr. King is, is the I have a dream speech. And one of the lines we hear is this. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. These words are rooted in the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 40, 4 through 5 to be exact. And the movement's commitment to nonviolence found its roots in love, which found its roots in the writings and the teachings of Jesus. It's these same sources, it's these same words, it's these same verses that gave rise, that gave rise to the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa or liberation theology that spread throughout poor communities throughout Latin America. James Cone, who's a professor at Union Theological Seminary, said this. He said, The hermeneutical principle for an exegesis of the Scripture is the revelation of a God in Christ 
as the liberator of the oppressed. The pages of the Bible, in spite of the best attempts of the powerful to twist and co-opt the Bible, there is within these pages a subversive power. It was Christians with their feet deeply planted in Scripture who launched the feminist movement and the movement to end slavery and socially responsible investing and the movement to end child labor in, in London. And what we typically think of as socially progressive causes or movements are in fact movements started by rather conservative Bible-believing Christians. And the Bible, for all of its perceived shortcomings, is a powerful and transformative book. Listen, the Bible, for all of its shortcomings, is a powerful and transformative book which we cannot ignore. It's a library with the power to shape and transform our lives. It tells us the story of God and allows God to be more fully revealed to us through the person of Jesus. See, through the pages of Scripture, we learn how to pray. And we're called and compelled to use our gifts in service to something bigger than our own ambition. We learn how to handle disputes And in the pages of Scripture, we encounter words which help us pray and and give voice to our deepest anguish and moanings of our heart when we don't have the words to express. There's a power within these pages that when unleashed is unsettling and threatening to the status quo. The Bible shapes and forms who we become as individuals and who we become as a community. N.T. Wright says it this way, the Bible is the primary means the Spirit uses to bring, about the, to bring about heart and life renewal. And this is what I want you to hear this morning, that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, you cannot ignore the Bible. Primarily because Jesus sees the pages of Scripture as foundational to his life and mission. Jesus understands his role against the backdrop of Scripture. The words of both Jesus and Paul are dripping with Scripture. In fact, this is interesting to to note, but Jesus and Paul both had committed the entire Hebrew Scriptures to memory. This is why when they speak, they don't often even mean to quote Scripture, and you have to sometimes sort out the text that they're quoting because it was so ingrained in who they were and the roles that they saw themselves living into. One of the best examples, I think, is found in the story of uh, actually the the inaugural event in Jesus' ministry, Um, this moment when he is in the desert. He has been led into the desert, and he spends 40 days and 40 nights in the desert to be tempted. And while he's in the wilderness, the tempter comes to Jesus. And I think this is interesting, because this isn't the first time that we encounter the tempter, the word that's used here, the, the phrase that's used here is the devil. In Genesis, it's referred to as the serpent, but in both cases, it is, it is painted as the accuser, as the tempter, the one who comes and creates doubt. And in both cases, the snake or the devil goes about trying to see doubt. In Genesis 3, the serpent says, did God really say that? Did God really say that? Is God really good? The question, we looked at this a while ago, the question the serpent is really asking, is God really good? 
It's interesting because to fight the temptation that Jesus meets, when Jesus meets the the tempter again, the way that Jesus resists is through the words of Scripture. So if you have your Bibles, I want to just quickly look at this passage this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me um, to Matthew. Turn with me to Matthew um, chapter 4, beginning with verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answers, It is written, Man does not live by bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said, once again, if you are the son of God, if you are, once again, the tempter seeding doubt, right? if you are who you say you are, if God is who God says God is, he said, throw yourself down for it is written. This is interesting. The accuser, the devil begins to use scripture against Jesus for it is written. Throw yourself down, or for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus replies, look, you are twisting these texts. And he knows that the devil is twisting the text because Jesus has studied the text. And he doesn't roll over. He replies, this is like, the, this is like one, a rap battle where they're both going back and forth, but it's scripture instead. And Jesus replies, right? Uh, has anyone ever seen Eight Mile with Eminem? Uh, never mind. It's not important. <laughs> anyway, why did I go there? Okay, so in verse 7, he says, It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he's getting exasperated this moment. And he's basically like, would you just please bow down and worship me? And he says this, all this I will give you. All this can be yours if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Once again, Jesus is pulling on the text. Jesus lives his life from the scriptures. He's saturated with them. They provide both the source of his strength and the power whereby he resists temptation. And Jesus is grounded and rooted in the words of scripture. He understands his life and mission against these texts. But the reason I want us to take, really want us to take an excursion into the story of Jesus and his relationship to scripture is this. Because I think it's pivotal. Ultimately, the question, ultimately, the question that we must answer as Christians or as followers of Jesus is what makes the Bible authoritative? And this is a deep question, and we could spend a really long time on it. And we're just going to scratch the surface today. But what makes the Bible authoritative? Why should it matter in our life? And some of you, because the problems that we explored at the outset have given up on the authority of the Bible, it is a nice collection of writings that provide a little bit of moral inspiration, but it's really nothing more than that. It is a collection of moral truths, potentially, maybe, depending on the day. 
But the problem is, if the Bible is simply nice literature, it has no power to transform. Where is the authority authority that provides the power for movements to end injustice? On the other hand, some of you are squirming in your seats with an answer to the question around authority. You want to scream, the authority comes from the author. God, duh, like, do you not get this? I'll come preach the sermon for you. The Bible is written. It's the holy word of God. It is wrapped in leather with gold, with gold words on it. It clearly is a powerful book. It matters. Your theme song is probably the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E, Bible. We learned that in, <laughs> did no one else learn that in elementary school? Christian school. Anyway, okay. Of course, of course, this view turns the Bible into an idol and is every bit as dangerous as dismissing the scriptures. Because it risks turning the Bible into a club and a justification for evil and the status quo with an unquestioning acceptance. If you don't believe me, just do a quick reading of church history when you get home. I want to suggest that as followers of Jesus, we take the Bible seriously because Jesus took the Bible seriously. Andrew Wilson, in a little book on the Bible, says it this way. He says, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus. We take the Bible seriously because we take Jesus seriously. And these ancient texts point forward to the, to the coming mission of Jesus, and they point backwards to the person of Jesus. And without these texts, without these texts, we can make Jesus and his mission in our own image. Ultimately, ultimately, the authority of Scripture is not found in Scripture, it's found in Jesus. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 26 verses, or Matthew 28 verses 16 through 18. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, "All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me." In the Bible, all authority belongs to God and then is delegated to Jesus. The risen Jesus doesn't say all authority in heaven and earth have been given to the books and the chapters you are going to read and to write. He says all authority has been given unto me. N.T. Wright says it this way. He says the phrase the authority of scripture can only at its best be a shorthand for the authority of God in Jesus mediated in scripture. But listen, To affirm the authority of Scripture in our lives does not mean we have it all figured out. As we read and do our best to make sense of these ancient texts, we step into a long and storied history of interpretation and disagreement. Now, we cannot simply dismiss verses because we disagree with them. And if we can, I have a long list that I want to start with. Most of them have to do with my wealth and the way I use my money, right? We cannot simply dismiss the verses that we don't like. But we we also cannot simply dismiss those who interpret text differently than us. William Platcher, who's one of my um, favorite um, theologians, says it this way. People who take 
the authority of Scripture, I'm going to change it slightly, but essentially he says people who take the authority of Scripture equally seriously can disagree about its meaning. And each generation has had to have to struggle on its own and wrestle with these texts in light of their context and in light of how these texts have been interpreted in the past. In fact, the Bible seems to provoke and to challenge a thoughtfulness, right? particularly the Hebrew scriptures. If you've ever talked to a rabbi and understand how Judaism would interpret and engage with the text, it, they would say it calls for a thoughtfulness, for an engagement, for a back and, a fo- back and forth. This is why one of our values here at the table is that, that we have conversations instead of policies. It arises out of a humility that we are not the ones who finally got Scripture right, but instead we humbly submit ourselves to the authority of these texts and pray that God's Spirit will change and transform us to look more like Jesus as we enter into these stories and as we allow them to wash over our lives and transform us. And my fear is that what ends up happening is the church ends up in two camps. We get the Bible nerds on one side who the scripture has a word for them. They are called Pharisees. And on the other side, I'm afraid we've stopped reading and we've stopped engaging. It just sits on our shelf. And what I hope happens as we go on a journey together as a church is that you will fall in love with the Bible and the God that it reveals. And that through the power of the Spirit, you would experience its transforming power and that you would look more like Jesus. And so next week, I hope you'll join us as we explore how the Bible came to be and what the Bible says about its own purpose and mission. Let's pray. God, I thank you for, for these, for these texts. I thank you for people who dedicated their entire lives to interpreting and understanding and wrestling with these words. And I pray that as a community that we would be transformed and changed as we enter into this story as we enter into this history, as we become part of the great witness, the great cloud of witnesses, as the followers of Jesus, as the faithful who have submitted themselves to Scripture and asked that these words would transform and to change them so that they look more like Jesus. I pray that your spirit would open our eyes and give us understanding and wisdom.